Hey everybody, welcome to ARE Live. I'm Mark Tier, the founder of Black Spectacles, and today we will be talking project management. So using a mock exam, we're gonna cover several topics uh, in this division of the ARE. And as a result of listening to this episode, you're gonna learn some useful test-taking strategies that will hopefully will help you feel comfortable demonstrating your knowledge uh, of some of the principles you'll need to know for this exam. At our next ARE Live broadcast, we'll speak with a panel of architects who didn't take the traditional path to licensure. Um, they will share their insights on what they would do different knowing uh, what they know now. Their stories will leave you feeling motivated to tackle licensure and put the ARE behind you. Um, so that's going to be the next one. If you want to hop over to our podcast page, you can actually register for that now. Otherwise, we'll uh, drop a link for that into the, uh, into the, uh, the chat in GoToWebinar. Um, as it relates to our products, you may have heard that Black Spectacle is the first ever NCARB approved test prep provider for all six of our ARE 5.0 divisions. And of course, that applies to all of our uh, study materials, our video lectures, practice exams, flashcards. Um, interestingly, um, on September 25th, 2019 here, uh, we're going to be launching another one of our group coaching cohorts. So if you're looking for some support and structure uh, while studying, you can uh, participate in that. Uh, it, uh, I believe, uh, again, the registration opens September 25th. It's actually for our October cohort. Um, so uh, you can go to uh, blackspectacles.com slash coaching to learn more about that. So I always like to tell people, if you'd like your boss to pay for your Black Spectacles membership, be sure to tell them about our firm licenses. Uh, and you can actually learn more about them uh, on this Thursday, September 5th, or I'm sorry, next Thursday, September 5th, uh, at noon central for our Black Spectacles ARE 5.0 product demonstration. Uh, and then and during this webinar, uh, one of our account executives, I think it's uh, AJ, maybe Ty, uh, will be walking you through why a firm subscription um, is a great way to, uh, to help you get licensed. So again, uh, we'll drop a link for that in the chat box as well. And lastly, today we have a special discount on Black Spectacles individual memberships, um, and we'll provide that coupon code at the end of the episode. Um, one of the fun things about doing one of these mock exams is uh, during this webinar, we'll be tracking all of your answers. Everyone who's already submitted your answers, uh, if you got all of the questions correct, uh, we're going to send you a free Black Spectacles t-shirt, so we'll talk about that at the end. Um, of course, my guest is uh, Mike Newman. Uh, if you don't know Mike, he's a senior lecturer at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, as well as the founder of Shed Studio, and he is the instructor for our uh, Black Spectacles online ARE exam prep lectures. So, uh, of course, thank you for uh, joining us today, Mike. And as always, Thanks. today we'll be taking your questions using the GoToWebinar question box. Uh, and so with that, I will hand uh, uh, it over to you, Mike. All right. Uh, so as Mark said, we're going to be talking about uh, project management today. Uh, so project management and practice management have a lot of overlap. So when you're thinking about like the process of taking the exam, I really like think about whether you want to kind of do them in quick sequence or roughly at the same time, because there's just so much of the information is uh, going to be similar. The practice management, uh, that one is really going to be all those issues that refer to the business as a whole. So you're going to be talking about how projects work, but you're tr the sort of angle you're taking that question from is uh, how do we make it work as a business? How do, so things like insurance, things like uh, putting together a team for an RFP and things like that. 
project management, the sort of assumption of each question is that there's a single project in front of you uh, and that, you know, for this question, here's a scenario about a project. And it's just sort of testing your, your knowledge of the general flow of information and relationships in projects. Um, so we're just going to jump right in. We've got a few different uh, questions to run through just as a little uh, test example here. Um, and remember that uh, some of these are written in sort of awkward ways so that I can have a certain topic to talk about. Uh, so if you miss one because it was sort of uh, a little weirdly written, don't, don't fret about it. Um, that's just me trying to make sure I cover certain topics. Uh, so you can blame me about that. So let's, uh, let's jump right in. All right, our first one. Uh, one, you've been hired by the owner to help put together the program for a new mixed-use housing and retail project in a revitalizing neighborhood downtown. You should, A, put together a detailed budget for the building using assembly method for cost estimating. B, analyze the relative space requirements for each of the different aspects of the project and how they might overlap. C, establish the general form of the building. D, the architect does not develop the program. So this is kind of an interesting uh, question. Uh, one of the things you'll find is that many of the answers that you'll get on, a, on one of these questions are sort of correct to a degree. And the question is, which is the most correct? So there's a kind of a funny one in here, which is D, right? Uh, which looks a little out of place, but I wouldn't be surprised if many of you actually answered D. Uh, and the reason that you might have answered D, the architect does not develop the program, is because in the actual AIA documents, in the contracts, in the B101 and its brethren, uh, and the other A201 information, the architect is not expected to develop the program. In fact, the program is typically brought to the architect along with the survey, geotech information, some budget information, some other things like that, some environmental reports maybe. Uh, that's the thing that the owners, the clients, will hand to the architect in order for them to figure out what, uh, how, how, what their fee is going to be, how they're going to do the project, how long things are going to take. It's hard to imagine putting together a fee if you don't have the program, if you don't know what the building is supposed to be. So the uh, contracts actually specifically exclude the program from the work of the architect. There is, however, a spot where you can do it as an additional service. It's uh, clearly located, and if, you, if the owner checks it off, then you are being paid to develop the program. So uh, you can be in the situation, it's just not the typical where the architect is putting together the program. And the way the question is written, you have been hired by the owner to help put together the program, uh, leads you to think either you're doing it as an additional service on a regular contract, or possibly even more likely, they've just given you a specific contract for doing the program. And the people who would do that are clients who just don't have the uh, skill set, don't have a, a big infrastructure of uh, development personnel, uh, who know how to put together a program, uh, and so they might actually ask the architect to, to deal with it. Uh, so that's one of those funny ones, but it is not D. Uh, let's keep going right up that list. How about C, establish the general form of the building? 
this one is actually a key one that I want to make sure you hear. Uh, it is absolutely not C. Uh, the reason for that is, and this is so hard for architects, myself included, uh, to hear, but when you're putting together the program, the whole point is that you're doing research and analysis and you're assembling data and information and goals and things like that, you are not designing. You are absolutely not designing. I can almost guarantee there will be some form of a question that leads you to think you should be designing in the program and you're not designing when you're putting the program together. And the reason for that is if you're designing too early, if you start in uh, where putting together like uh, data information and at the same time you're off on the side sketching what you think the building should look like, suddenly your data will start uh, uh, fitting to your designs. Subconsciously, maybe consciously, uh, but the, the reason that you don't do it that way, the reason you don't want to start designing is because the data becomes suspect. Uh, you want the data to come through, and then once you've done that, the designs to come from that data. Uh, I'm using data a little loosely, some of it's actual data, some of it's goals and other uh, conversations with owners and things like that. So that's a big one. I just want to make sure everybody hears that you're not designing during programming. So then we have the first two uh, that are the possibilities. Uh, a says, put together a detailed budget for building uh, using assembly method for cost estimating. Um, putting together a budget for the building does make sense. It's not likely to be detailed, uh, so that word bothers me. Uh, and I'm certainly not going to be using the assembly method uh, of that. That's a that's a thing where I'm getting into much more detail about like uh, is it you know um, a brick with an air cavity uh, or is it a metal siding? Like I'm getting into the design well before I would be ready to to do it. So it's not A either. So therefore we are B, analyze the relative space requirements for each of the different aspects of the project and how they might overlap. One of the big things you do, it's only one of many, but one of the big things you do when you're putting together a program uh, is everybody, all the different departments, if it's a corporation or you know, all the different rooms, if it's a house or whatever it happens to be, you're sort of looking to say, like, everybody wants conference rooms and everybody wants, uh, you know, team spaces and everybody wants a place for the copiers and all of that. Well, maybe you can make uh, one conference room that works with three different departments or something instead of having three separate conference rooms. One of the points of the program is to kind of find those those uh, uh, pieces of information about those potential overlaps of, uh, for the program. So B is the answer. 235 left. Well done. You didn't knock out as many as you hit. Those, <laughs> so yeah, well done. Okay, uh, two, which of the following are aspects of review for the zoning code analysis? And we have FAR, covenants, setbacks, easements, meets and bounds, and parking. Um, all right, so I'm just going to go through and show the answers right off the bat, and then we're just going to talk about each one uh, a little bit uh, just to kind of run through it. So the potential, uh, the, the correct answers here are A, FAR, that's part of the zoning, uh, C, the setbacks, and I'll talk more in a second about what that is, uh, and then F, the parking. Again, this is one of those examples where 
uh, all of the answers are reasonable answers in one way or another. When you're doing a zoning code analysis, I would actually be interested in the covenants. I would be interested in the easements. Uh, those are things that are similar to the zoning code, but they are not the zoning code. They are separate legal documents that are private legal uh, entities that are not part of the zoning. Uh, so again, uh, there's many possible answers, and you're looking for the ones that are the best answer. So since this is about the zoning code, these three are the ones that are absolutely part of the zoning code. FAR is the floor area ratio, and that's essentially a way of saying how big a building can be on a site. And it's a direct ratio between the uh, square footage of the site uh, versus the allowed square footage of the building that's going to be put on that site. Uh, so if you have a 10,000 square foot site and you have an FAR of one, that means you could build a 10,000 square foot building. It might be two stories, it might be three stories, whatever, the whole thing is going to add up to the, the 10,000. Uh, if you had a FAR of 12, well then you potentially can build a quite tall building. If you have an FAR of 0.4 or something like that, that's probably in a single family residence area, something along those lines. So it's just a way of controlling massing uh, in given uh, districts. Uh, setbacks are obviously uh, front setbacks, side setbacks. Uh, that's the area that you're not allowed next to the property line to, uh, to build. Uh, in a commercial district, your setback, for example, on the front is probably zero. So just the fact that, they're, that we talk about them as setbacks doesn't actually mean there's always an actual dimension. Uh, sometimes it's zero, sometimes it's 10 feet, sometimes it's 20 feet, depends on the situation. Uh, and parking, parking is one of those things that is a huge part of a zoning code analysis. Uh, I have been part of many projects that started and then we did the analysis and then we realized, oh uh, yeah, they can't afford to put in all the parking that is going to be required for this and the project stops. Uh, it's, uh, it's probably as important as any other part of the zoning uh, zoning code analysis. Now that may change over the years as we go into uh, different kinds of car ownership setups and self-driving cars and things like that. But you know the exam is not there yet, uh, and so parking is a huge part of of these things. Let's talk about covenants for just a second. So covenants um, can be on a many different types of uh, of uh, developments, but the easiest way to picture them is like a housing development, and. If you've ever gone to like a gated community or any sort of uh, uh, housing development where you, where you drive through and you're like, wow, all the houses kind of look the same. Uh, all the roofs are uh, same roof angles or something like that. That's because there's a bunch of covenants on that set of properties. And the idea is to make sure that everything's sort of consistent and that nobody builds anything that's going to lower the property value of somebody else. Uh, and, you, you know, if you're in Aspen and you're driving through a development and everything looks kind of Swiss chalet-like, well, that's because there's a bunch of covenants on the land. And so they are legal documents that ride with the deed. Uh, and so when you buy into that, you are buying into not only the piece of land, but the covenants, the rules by which you are allowed to build on that land. It could be materials, it could be location, it could be... Uh, uh, the fact there was actually a big court case a little while ago uh, with uh, uh, somebody who was trying to, from, for sustainability reasons, uh, got rid of her dryer because she thought it was a big waste of energy. And so she was hanging her clothes out uh, on a clothesline and she got sued because it 
the covenant said you weren't allowed to do that, right? So it's both architectural and other issues, like you can't put a truck in your driveway, things along those lines. So it's a, it's a pretty big grouping of things, but it's very important. You obviously wouldn't want to design a house without looking through the covenants if there were covenants on that site. If you're just doing a one-off building in a one-off location where they, you know, there's no big developer involved, then covenants are not going to be involved. But in any sort of big development, you will definitely find them. Easements. Easements are an interesting one because they're very similar to zoning setbacks. And so it's often confused with setbacks. Uh, you'll have often like, a, for example, a, a utility easement for a electric line or something along those lines. Uh, but you can also have, let's say you have a piece of property that uh, by the way that the property around it got sold off doesn't have access to a roadway. And so to get a driveway in, you need to have an easement through somebody else's property. So it's that you get the right uh, to put your driveway through and to use the driveway, but it's still actually owned by the other people, uh, by the other piece of property. You can have view easements. You can have uh, all sorts of different uh, drainage easements. So water that's draining, draining from one site can drain through and across another site. You could have uh, easements with livestock. You can have all kinds of different forms of easements. Uh, but the big ones that show up a lot for architects are utility easements, driveway easements, and, and such. Uh, so they are a legal document that rides with the deed. So if I own the land, I can't sell you the, this easement right. Uh, you put in a driveway, and then I quickly turn around and sell my property, and the next person buys the property and says, no, you can't put your driveway there. Uh, like That's not plausible because when I sold the property, the deed included the easement of, of that uh, for that driveway. So easements are very similar to zoning code. They are pieces of information about the site that tell you where you can and cannot build, but they are separate legal documents that are essentially contracts uh, between uh, two different landowners or two different entities, a landowner and a different entity. Meets and bounds is kind of an interesting one. That's a type of survey. It's sort of an old fashioned type of survey uh, that uh, you, you have distances and, and angles and you kind of put it all together uh, and there are times these days when you still would use a meets and bounds, uh, but it's, a, it's kind of a referencing to an old-fashioned uh, survey system. So FAR, setbacks, and parking. All right, number three. During a weekly walkthrough of the construction site, the architect sees that the painters are using the wrong color in the master bedroom. The architect should A, write a letter to the owner, B, tell the painter to stop, C, inform the GC that there is a discrepancy, D, write a change order to correct the problem. Uh, so again, there's a couple in here that uh, may be correct answers if you had more information. Uh, for example, uh, D, if we had more of the timeline and we knew more about what was going on, uh, it is quite possible that either you or the GC, as the architect, you or the GC, uh, would uh, create a change order. But we don't have enough information yet, and we don't even know whether uh, we actually do need uh, to do the change order. So it's not D. Uh, how about write a letter to the owner? 
Well, I mean, that's certainly an okay answer. That's a solid answer. It's not the best answer, though. And the reason it's not the best answer is that there's actually action happening on the site. Uh, and things are going forward. And like a written letter to the owner, who knows how long that would take uh, to sort of play out. Uh, and so it's just not a, a really good answer. So I'm going to call that wrong, even though it's kind of correct. Uh, how about B, tell the painter to stop? Um, in almost, un unless the contract is uh, for design build or you have a specific contract where the architect is being uh, consciously given control over means and methods uh, and therefore also being compensated for having that control over means and methods, you never ever walk onto a job site and say stop to any of the subs of the general contractor. If they're your subs, feel free to say stop. That's, your, that's one of your jobs is to control the flow of information and the, and the, the work that's happening. Uh, but if they are not your subs, it is not your job. And interestingly, by telling them to stop in that situation, you could potentially take on a great deal of uh, uh, potential liability uh, down the road if, for example, the building comes in you know, uh, four weeks late and there are penalties for the general contractor uh, for each week that they're late, uh, they are very likely to write a letter that says, well, you know, the architect came through uh, seven weeks ago or tw 12 weeks ago uh, and told the painters to stop and therefore took over control of the schedule. Uh, so from a legal standpoint, the danger of saying stop to the painters is that you are literally absorbing the schedule responsibility by doing that. Now, it can be a little complicated. It depends on uh, how, if it was being handled through litigation or something, if problems went into a deep... Uh, situation like that. Uh, it's not necessarily true that every uh, judge would follow that kind of thinking, but it's true enough that that's how the contracts are written and that's how the, the sort of expectation of conduct. Uh, the painters are part of the GC's world, uh, the mechanical engineer and the structural engineer and those folks are part of the architect's world. They don't tell the structural engineer to stop and you don't tell the painter or the plumber or the electrician to stop. Uh, however, you do inform the GC that there is a discrepancy. And there's another reason for this and that I just want to make sure because you could imagine a slightly more complicated question uh, that could lead you to a couple of different ways of thinking about this. One of the reasons why C is, is so accurate, especially in something like the paint color in a master bedroom, and this is, I always use this example because this actually happened to me, uh, where, you know, I chose a, a color and the client was like, oh, yeah, that's great, Mike. Thanks very much. You know, you know, love the color. And then clearly turned around and said to the general contractor, whatever you do, don't put that, you know, butter, buttercup yellow or whatever the heck it was uh, into the master bedroom, you know, use this... Uh, robin egg blue instead and they're the owner they get to say that that's fine so when i go onto the job site and i say hey this is the wrong paint color it may be that the gc actually has newer or more useful information 
or it may be that uh, the only way to get that color is to put on a, 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 you know, a certain coat first and then a second coat later that's a different color to give you the full spectrum or like you just don't necessarily know. That's one of the reasons why you don't just say stop because the painters, if you say stop, the painters are going to stop and go off the job site and uh, go to another project of theirs and maybe you can't get them back for two weeks, right? So you can, just by saying stop, you can actually really mess up a schedule because of course other people can't do what they need to do until the painters have finished. Um, so the whole point here, and this is one of those things that you're going to find over and over again on questions from NCARB, is that you're following the sort of logical set of uh, relationships uh, you're following the contracts and you're following the regular connections. So there's a problem on the job site. You talk to the GC. You have a conversation about it. If it turns out there's more information, then great. If it doesn't and they truly are painting the wrong color, uh, then you might get into a situation where you say, uh, well, wait, you know, this isn't going to meet the uh, requirements of the uh, contract documents, uh, when, once this project is finished, this will, paint color will be the wrong color, so we need to stop this process. Uh, um, and then you're saying that to the GC, the GC has their response, so you're having it as a discussion uh, with everybody representing their agendas and their appropriate contractual uh, responsibilities. Uh, the only reason that a change order would get written is if uh, you had spec'd one thing and they had painted that, and then it turned out everybody wanted to change it, and we had to go to something different, and it cost more or cost less or was going to take longer, and so therefore the contract between the owner and the GC needed to be changed. Uh, and we just don't have enough information here to think that that might be the case. So inform the GC that there is a discrepancy. It's al almost always these questions are going to be about having a reasonable conversation uh, with the appropriate other players. All right, down to 83 here. Wow. All right, here we go. It's getting exciting. Okay, number four. The client is ready to go and signs the B101 owner-architect agreement. One of the first tasks that the architect should do is uh, a, a building code search and analysis. What is the first aspect of this process that should be established? Permitted uses, construction type, occupancy, egress. So first thing right off the bat, uh, I'm going to cancel out A because that's not the building code, that's the zoning code. Uh, so permitted uses are part of the zoning process. It's a, one quick aside before I move on. One of the things to remember is there, most of these terms are national terms uh, and get used uh, across the board um, everywhere. Every once in a while you'll find uh, zoning code will not use the specific term permitted uses, uh, but the vast majority do to the point that NCARB will actually use that term. The other one that I used earlier, FAR, floor area ratio, uh, for example, in Chicago, it's actually, um, uh, no, actually, actually FAR they use in Chicago, but uh, some places use a, a subtly different ones, but the exam uses FAR. So the ones that we talk about here are all things that are likely to be used on the exam. So A, permitted uses, nope, that's zoning. This is a talking about the building code search and analysis, so not A. So the question really becomes construction type, occupancy, or egress. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, egress is an 
important thing to understand and is going to have a very quick uh, and powerful impact on uh, design, design thinking. But you can't really have a conversation about egress until you know the construction type and the occupancy. Uh, it doesn't really make any sense to even start the conversation about egress. Uh, for example, um, let's say we're doing a hospital and the hospital, uh, you know, if you figured out what the egress pattern was and then you figured out that, okay, we're gonna do it out of uh, uh, wood two by four construction. Like really, you're gonna do a hospital out of two by four construction? Uh, that doesn't really make any sense to the, to the occupancy type and it's going to be very difficult. So you'd be able to do it, but it would be a very, very, very small uh, amount of building that they would allow you to build. And then you say, well, okay, maybe we'll do it out of concrete. Well, now you could probably build as big a hospital as you wanted, right? So the egress patterns will change dramatically given the construction type and the occupancy. So unfortunately, not egress. That'll come, and it's important, it'll come soon, but the first thing we're gonna do is we're gonna look at occupancy. It's sort of obvious. Um, it's so obvious that probably a few people missed it because it just seems like it's sort of, uh, construction type would be the logical place that you would go, but you can't really have a conversation about construction type until you have nailed down occupancy. Now, the example of hospital is a pretty easy one, uh, there will be a hospital construction type, uh, excuse me, occupancy type. Um, so uh, not all of them will be that simple. For example, let's say you have uh, retail on the first floor and multifamily uh, above, right? That's a mixed occupancy and it can be sort of complicated about how you start to analyze the occupancy of that building uh, and finding the situations where there's conflicts, you're always having to go with the more restrictive uh, aspect of the conflict. So understanding the occupancy is by far the most important thing to get done first. Then the second thing you're gonna do is you're gonna make your best guess as to what sort of construction type and the two pieces of information, occupancy and construction type, will then allow you to sort of search and find what sort of fire rated walls are you going to need? What kind of egress are you going to need? What sort of, uh, how big a building are you going to be allowed to build? How big a floor can you build? All of that information is going to flow from the building code by being able to use the occupancy with the construction type. So we start with occupancy and then go to construction type. All right, down to 25. Number five, which of the following actions would be the most useful for the architect to do following completion of the design development set? Um, yeah, so this is, I, I find these kinds of questions a little annoying, but I wanted to put one in here um, because they're, you know, they're trying to test your knowledge, but they're also trying to make a point, right? Um, and so you will get questions like this that uh, are sort of trying to encourage you to have good uh, meetings with um, your consultant teams, uh, you know, meetings at regular intervals um, with the client, meetings uh, during the construction phase and regular intervals with the contractors. So it's all about kind of systematizing and, and making things make sense. But it's also about uh, starting with a really good program, starting with a reasonable budget, starting with a, all that, you know, a, a well-informed uh, starting point and with a good solid team, 
and then uh, always going back and checking against all of that information as you move along because uh, you don't want what's referred to lovely in a lovely way as creep. Uh, you don't want to just suddenly the building is 20% bigger because it just worked better and now, uh, you know, it's the building is obviously also 20% more expensive. And if you haven't told the client that you made the building bigger, well, then there's going to be a problem down the road, right? So uh, NCARB is all about kind of systematizing uh, all of that sort of process. So let's run through these. So uh, just a reminder, which of the following actions would be the most useful for the architect to do following the completion of the design development set? So schematic design, well, potentially pre-design issues, then schematic design, then design development, then contract documents, so permits and construction sets, then bidding, then construction uh, administration. So we're still in the design portion. Uh, we're not into the uh, uh, contract document set yet, uh, but we are well through. We actually should have, by the end of design development, we should have a building that everybody knows what it is, what it looks like, what the materials are, all of that. Um, but we just haven't done all the detailing yet. So A, review the current project against the initial budget projections. Absolutely. Uh, it's very easy to have creep on these things and things to get out of hand. Uh, and so at the end of schematic design, you're going to review the project uh, compared to the orig original budget projections. When you get to the end of design development, you're going to review the pr uh, project against the original budget uh, projections. Uh, when you get to the end of the CD sets, the uh, contract documents, you're actually not going to review, I mean, you're, if you're smart, you will uh, in-house, but you're not required to review because that's what the bidding is for. You're going to get the bidding is going to go through. Uh, and and do this. So the idea is you start with real information and then you uh, always go back and make sure that you're uh, still meeting that information. Let's look at B. Develop uh, the bid forms to produce the most accurate and useful bidding possible. Uh, that is absolutely true at some point, but not yet. Uh, you can't be putting together the bid forms uh, at the design development stage. It just doesn't you're not there yet. You have to wait until you uh, have more information, you know uh, more about what's going on, you've had conversations with the owner, which you probably really can't have until the end of design development about, well, what happens if the building comes in too expensive? Are there things we don't have to include? Are there things, uh, you know, are, are there things on the wish list versus uh, things that must be in there? So uh, B is a great thing to do, but it would be happening during the bid phase or at the very end of the CD phase. So not B. C, set up a meeting with the, there's a little wrong here, Let's get rid of that, with the team of consultants to review progress and coordinate overlapping issues of structure and MEP. Absolutely. This is totally the whole point of what I was just talking about in terms of setting up at the end of schematic design, all the consultants that are already part of the team should take a look and have a conversation. What do they foresee the problems are going to be? The end of design development, everybody has their game plans going, and now we can see how things are going to be interacting and whether there's going to be a problem with you know, the size of a truss versus the size of a duct and you know, all of those kinds of things. Uh, and so this is the perfect moment to have that conversation before everybody gets into their full-on full uh, contract document uh, setup. So now we have uh, one more out of the last three. 
D, analyze whether current design is still in alignment with the original code review. Doesn't that sound an awful lot like A? Yes, it does. What a good idea. So D is absolutely a good one. Uh, let's look at E, initiate the review of the means and methods for the construction. Um, unless it says that you are actually doing the construction end of things, that this is a design-build project, the assumption is that it is not design-build, uh, and therefore means and methods means the way that things are going to be built and the schedule by which they will be built. That's the GC, uh, unless it that's the question specifically takes you down the road of being a design builder where you're actually responsible, the architect is actually responsible for the construction, but it's very, uh, you might get a question or two like that, but very unlikely. Uh, it, the, anytime you see means and methods, that's sort of the old timey way of saying, uh, how are we gonna actually build this thing? The architect has put together the intent, the design intent, uh, which is all your drawings and all that information in the spec book and all of that. Uh, that's all the intent of what things should be. And then the contractor brings the means and methods and the schedule to actually make it happen. So uh, absolutely not for the architect to be doing the means and methods, like I said, unless you've been specifically contracted to do it. And then F, order the survey to determine the site design uh, viability. Uh, if you have done the design development and you uh, haven't looked at a survey yet, uh, you are sunk, man. Um, uh, that's a very bad time to get your survey because uh, you're basing you know, the whole design off uh, where it can fit on the site, and that's something you actually have to have to start. So F is wrong for lots of reasons. One is uh, it's too late for that. I mean, I've actually had projects where we didn't get the survey until this point, but you know that doesn't mean it's a good, good thing to copy. Um, uh, so one is the timing is just wrong, but the other is you're not, as the architect, you are not ordering the survey. The owner is ordering the survey. Now again, if the question includes that it's being taken from the developer's standpoint, POV, uh, or if the architect is acting as a developer or something along those lines, then you might be ordering the survey. But there's a reason that the owner orders the survey. The survey is about the site. It's about uh, the, the, it's a legal description of what the owner has that you uh, are going to be putting your design intent onto. Uh, and so they are giving you that legal description. They are telling you about the soils that, that are there. That's part of that uh, sort of telling you about the site. They are telling you, this is be, they being the owner, uh, are telling you what the program is, what they need. Uh, they are giving you the uh, information about environmental issues. Uh, so if they've done an environmental report, a phase one or phase two, something like that, uh, they are giving you that information. Uh, so uh, they're also giving you the funding information and uh, all, all, all the things about what uh, are going to be the drivers of the design uh, that you will then take and turn into a design intent. So if you order the survey, what that means is you are now taking responsibility for the legal information there. And if there's a mistake on the survey, instead of it being a problem of the owners, it's now a problem of yours. Even if the owner says, hey, could you just order that for me? You have now taken responsibility for it. So uh, you absolutely 
never want to order the survey. Uh, I say that having ordered surveys probably, I don't know, 15 times in my career, so at least, uh, because you do what you got to do to get things done. But that's not the same as doing it right, right? Uh, this is an exam about doing it right. Uh, and so when you see something like this, unless the question specifically gives you an out, like you are acting as the developer uh, while you're doing this, uh, unless it says something like that, you never order the survey. That's part of the owner's responsibility. GC's responsibility, means and methods and schedules. Uh, your responsibility is design intent and uh, compliance with uh, program, compliance with code, compliance with budget, and all of those issues. So there you go, A, C, and D. Mike, we do have one. So yeah. uh, number one, holy smokes, we have 20 winners. <laughs> <laughs> wow, so, awesome. Um, can we make the questions harder next time, please? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Says the um, guy who has to, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, no, I'm just kidding, actually. Um, we do have one question from Druva going back to uh, question four. Uh, so let me if you can maybe skip back one. Uh, question was, if the client's ready to sign the contract, isn't occupancy already discussed before? Well, don't get confused um, by uh, using the term occupancy. And that's, that's great. I'm really... I, I meant to say say this, so thank you for asking this particular question. Um, when, when we're talking about uh, the building code, that's a very specific version of the word occupancy. Um, now, obviously, the program is going to say, you know, hey, we're doing a, we want to do a multifamily, or we want to do a hospital, or we want to do a corporate headquarters, or whatever it is. Uh, or, you know, a warehouse or something. So you're talking about how the building will be used, which is the colloquial version of occupancy. And that's one thing that you're going to use to figure out what occupancy means in terms of the building code. So, for example, uh, let's say you're doing a theater. Well, what's your occupancy? Well, it's an assembly. But is it just assembly or is it assembly one and different places will have slightly different versions of this but like uh, assembly for like uh, uh, you know 40 people or, or 45 people is a very different set of rules in terms of egress and fire rating and things uh, than assembly for somebody a situation where you're going to have 3,000 or 4,000 people so the, when we say occupancy in the context of the building code, we're not talking about the sort of general use of the word, like, hey, what are you going to do in this building? Uh, we're talking about specifically a list that's in the code, and you're grabbing specific pieces of information, and you're choosing the exact way, and that by choosing those specific elements, it's now taking you to a different part of the table of how big a room can it be, how... Uh, does it need to be one-hour rated walls, or can it be two-hour rated walls, or should it be four-hour rated walls? Like the tables, you can only read the tables by uh, knowing that uh, slice of the occupancy. All right, beautiful. Thank you, Mike. Um, thank you for uh, for our, our conversation today. Thanks everybody for tuning in. At the next of our at the next uh, ARE Live podcast uh, that we have, we'll be speaking with a panel of architects about the reasons to get the ARE out of the way sooner rather than later. Um, I just posted the link to register in the chat box in your GoToWebinar control panel. Of course, you can also just go to blackspectacles.com slash podcast uh, to register and sign up. 
I love this topic uh, because this is one of those things people come up and talk to me all the time about, you know, oh, I don't really feel like I need to worry about it right now, so I'll just deal with it. Like, that's fine in certain situations, that's great, but it's never easier to do later. It just isn't. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, we have quite a few people in our coaching program who yeah. are living that reality right now. It just, um, you just you get farther away from taking exams. You get, you know, like it's just it's just going to be harder to do mm-hmm. 10 years from now. Mm-hmm. Trust me, it's harder to do than two years from now. Yeah. Um, cool. So um, I guess, Mike, uh, we'll have to make sure you tune in. Yeah, I'll have to listen in. Yeah. <laughs> um, so for uh, folks, uh, so if you'd like to learn more about our ARE exam prep curriculum, you can go to blackspectacles.com where you can try out any of our course videos. And as I always like to say, if you'd like your boss to pay for your membership, be sure to visit blackspectacles.com slash firms to learn more about our firm memberships for firms of any size. And then for those of you who are ready to start preparing for the ARE right now, you can use coupon code PJM82719PC to get a 15% discount for the entire duration of your ARE exam prep membership. And then finally, tomorrow, we'll email you a follow-up about today's live broadcast. So please let us know what you think um, and share any suggestions that you may have, including ideas for new topics. Um, If there's something you'd like uh, us to do a topic on, please respond to that email and let us know uh, because we really do read everything that you say and use that to tune our next episodes. So thanks for tuning in. 